0: Good morning. morning. We are working our way, little by little, through a book in the Bible, the New Testament part of the Bible, called Philippians. And uh, if you have been with us for any length of time, and if you keep coming back, I hope you will uh, get tired of me in a good way of getting tired of me saying... Are you spending time in Philippians this week? Just four little chapters, you could probably read it once a week pretty easily. Are you you soaking in it? Or as I hope to demonstrate by the fact that we're going slow through this particular book, because this is the kind of book in the Bible that's designed to read slowly. uh, I hope uh, you're getting uh, the sense of importance that when you slow down and maybe just soak in one verse, or even just two or three verses, Uh, it will drive Christ more deeply into your heart, or perhaps a more theological way to say it, it will bring Christ deep in your heart, out of your heart more, Uh, and that's uh, certainly the case today as we will probably spend all our time on one verse uh, today, Uh, just a few words out of all God's words. Uh, The thing that I'm uh, encouraging you to think about with regards to, let's see, First slide up, there we go. Uh, Philippians is this book that's about joy. And one of the descriptions of joy that we're in right now is this idea of joy really comes from reinterpreting your circumstances in life in Christ. And to some extent, your unwanted circumstances, uh, reinterpreting them in Christ. How might... How might an unwanted circumstance in your life right now be advancing the gospel? How might an unwanted circumstance in your life right now be proclaiming Christ? In other words, making the ruling presence of Christ on this planet more visible to you and to anyone else observing you. How might what looks so bad and is bad be serving what's so right? That's what Philippians invites us to do is to reinterpret these circumstances. And today, if there's one circumstance in all of life that is perhaps arguably the most unwanted circumstance and the most feared circumstance... It's the end of life itself. There's a reason the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. He's actually speaking about Christ, but buried in that is something about this world. Since therefore the children, human beings, share in flesh and blood. They're, uh, you know, we are flesh and blood people. He himself, Jesus, likewise became flesh and blood. Or God became flesh and blood. So that he might do something that through his death, he might destroy death. He may, more specifically, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. And interestingly, it's described in just this little one verse here, that the devil has this fear of death that enslaves humanity. Now, let's be really honest here. Even when Christ comes into your life and you have a sense of certainty of what's going to happen to you if you die, even then the devil can mess with you with, with regards to fear of death or fear in general. I would argue that every single person in this room today, whether you believe this or not, it's as true as the fact that you're breathing right now. Your life is ruled by fear, and behind that fear is the devil. And his ultimate fear is the power uh, of death this uh, slavery that he, um, he affects humanity with. That's why Ecclesiastes 7, this book in the Old Testament, says, it's actually better to go to the house of mourning, where, where you're mourning someone who's died, than to the house of feasting, where you're celebrating someone who's born. Why would that be better? He goes on to say, because it causes the living to consider their end. And if you go through all of life without considering your end, uh, then you in some ways are the most unfortunate of all. And that's why Psalm 90, Moses writes at the end of his life, Teach us, Lord, to number our days, because if I've learned anything in life, it's really short. And teach us to make the most of our days. So death isn't something that you think about when you're in your 80s and your 90s. There's a sense in which Scripture says death should always be in front of us, but not in a morbid way, but in a sort of wake-up-to-reality way. And today we're going to see how uh, Paul himself looks at death. So let me pray as we consider this most unwanted of all circumstances. Lord, really just one thing I want to say to you this morning thank you for speaking. I just can't imagine where we would be if we were left to our own best thoughts throughout the ages. It would be darkness itself. But here is light, so give us light today. For Jesus' sake, amen. So we're in Philippians chapter 1. We're in this second part, uh, I'm going to start actually uh, at the end of verse 18, uh, when Paul says, uh, he's speaking about, uh, in, a, in a couple of verses before, if you weren't here last week, he's basically saying, as to what's going to happen without me, he's in prison, and he's bothered by the fact that people are out there uh, uh, in, with motives of envy and rivalry, preaching Uh, Christ and kind of robbing his converts as it were or at least making them more vulnerable he says nonetheless whether in pretense or truth Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice so as to what's happening without me Paul says look the gospel is being advanced despite their bad motives and in that I can find joy I can find joy. Despite what's happening without me, I can find joy. Then he goes on in verse 19, which really takes off at the end of 18. And he basically says, as to what's happening to me, I can also find joy. It's almost like he says, look, guys, don't worry about my circumstances. I know I'm in prison. I know others are out there with wrong motives preaching Christ. But I want to tell you, in my prison... I am still finding reason to find joy in what those guys are doing because people are being saved. Christ is being proclaimed. As to what's happening to me, guess what? There's even more joy when I think of what's happening to me. And that's what starts this off with this little word. Yes, and not only that, I will continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers, verse 19, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And he goes on to speak about uh, his eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And so what Paul is doing is laying out for us really the thing I want to lay out for you today. When joy is rooted in what's certain, not certain circumstances, it's uninterruptible and it's undefeatable. When joy is rooted in what's certain, and that's what Paul does, he roots it in what's certain, not certain circumstances, then joy really is uninterrupted and undefeatable. Here's a question for you. It's one of these things that I wind up doing sometimes when I'm in the Word. I I ask questions like, I wonder what the difference between faith and joy is. And I find those questions to be much more difficult than I think. I give an answer, and I realize, oh, that doesn't work. And I give another answer, and it doesn't work. So what's the difference between, you know, like, say, joy and hope? Are they overlapping circles? Are they totally different things? What's the difference in this case between faith and joy? Now, I'm going to give you my best answer, which is probably not the, the best answer. It's just my best answer. I think perhaps joy relates to what's visible And faith relates to what's invisible. Faith is this, if I can put it this way, faith is this deep certainty. It's one of the things I love about Hebrews 11 verse 1 that describes faith. Faith is is like eyesight. And ideally as you grow older, as your physical eyesight gets weaker, your spiritual eyesight gets greater. And and, uh, so better to have dying eyes and living eyes, so to speak... But, uh, so, faith would, re- would be this deep-seated certainty, and then joy is that certainty coming to the surface and being visible. That's my best guess as to how these two things relate. And Paul uses words of certainty here, doesn't he? Verse 19, for I know, not I sure hope, or I wish, I wish, I wish, I know, and then he goes on to tell us what he knows, and then he amps it up even more in verse 20, it's my eager expectation. He could have just said it's my expectation, but he really wanted you to hear, no, it's my eager expectation. He could have stopped there. He said, it's not only my eager expectation, it's my hope, which actually means confident expectation. I mean, he just can't get enough words out of him to say, do you realize how absolutely certain I am about this? And, uh, and then there's two things that he's, he's certain about here. His deliverance, and I put that in italics because essentially Paul does. Did you notice that? Listen, I I know I'm going to be delivered. One thing I know for sure, in this prison that I'm in, I am going to be delivered. My life might be delivered, or I I might be delivered out of prison, or I might be delivered out of prison through death, but I will be delivered. That's why italics are more important than the word. When we pray for deliverance, God will always, always answer us but then are you just asking for certain circumstances of deliverance or deliverance as the broadest possible definition of deliverance? Uh, So that's one thing, but the thing that he really wants, that that he saves his most certain words for, is that Christ will be honored. Honored. By the way, just a rabbit trail, a little footnote, since we're reading, most of us, this book on prayer. Would you notice in verse 19 how differently this would read if he says, For I know that through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. But he says, it's not just the Holy Spirit. It's your prayers that have the power to deliver me along with the Holy Spirit. And apparently, I'm almost tempted to say the Holy Spirit never works without them. I'm not saying that. I'm just tempted to say that. (laughs) But if nothing else, you should just... I know that for most of you, and I'm in that crowd, prayer does not seem to have power. And I want you to get used to saying, that is a voice of the evil one always, always. Thank you. (laughs) All right, so back to this uh, other idea here, and that is that I want you to see that joy here, it's another way of saying it, joy comes from wanting the honor of Christ, the glory of Christ, more than your outcome and your circumstances. If you really want this kind of joy the Philippians talks about, then at at the deepest part of your soul, what you're going to want is the honor of Christ no matter what. Yes, pray for other outcomes, of course. Pray for certain circumstances that you want, of course. We're all praying that right now for a number of people. But don't let that be your only prayer. Don't let that be your ultimate prayer. Pray that no matter what, Christ would be honored in this situation, even if the outcome is not what I want, and even if the outcome is what I dread most. And by the way, Paul had this certainty of Christ's honor, not because he was a mature believer, not because, you know, he he believed hard enough. That's not the reason Paul could say this. He said it because it is a promise to every believer when they yield their wants to God. It is a promise to every believer that when you yield your wants to God, Christ will be honored. Romans 6.19 says, we were before when we didn't know Christ, we were slaves to impurity resulting in more lawlessness, but now we are willing slaves to righteousness always resulting in sanctification. In other words, the more honor of Jesus coming out of us. It's a promise, Romans 6:19 or 1 Peter 2:5 which says, "Offer to God spiritual sacrifices that are always acceptable." Because of Christ, because of Christ, because of Christ. So, instead of being desperate for a particular outcome, we are yielding to what matters most, God's honor. Our God himself, our Father, hallowed be your name. That's what we're saying when we say that. God, no matter what, hallowed be your name. May your name be honored, no matter what. And over and over, this life practice that we saw a couple weeks ago from Philippians 1.10, this life practice of approving what is excellent, constantly choosing over and over again God. What is excellent, what is what, or as one translation says, choosing over and over again what really matters most in life. So that the most interestingly, when you do that, then the most unwanted circumstance in life becomes the most wanted circumstance, if I can say it that way. That's exactly the way Paul says it. When he says, you see, for me to live is Christ, so that therefore the most unwanted circumstance in life is gain. It's just a simple math formula. The reason death has lost its sting Which, by the way, isn't the same thing as saying that death doesn't have a lot of stink in it. We'll get to that later. But um, the reason death has lost its sting are that fear has less and less power to rule your life. It's all because of what you're living for. That's what Paul is saying by this statement. What you're living for is the hub of all the ever-changing spokes in your life. So, what are you living for? Well, I want you to just listen to a number of texts here when he says this thing about um, what does it mean to to live for Christ? Well, Psalm thirty-four is. Uh, if you want to follow along, you can. Um, it'll take me a minute to find these things because I I use paper. Rather than digits. Uh, That's meant to be a jab. But Psalm 34 verses 4 through 7. And uh, I want you to think about each one of these lines. Each one of these verses as a description of what's happened to you if you belong to Jesus Christ. Psalm 34 verse 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. That's what happens when we give our lives to Christ. I especially love verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant. And why are they radiant? Because of the next line. Their faces shall never be ashamed. When you come to Christ, he makes you beautiful. And he does it by ridding you of all the shame, past, present, and future that is associated with you, done to you, and that you did yourself. Verse 6, this poor man cried, we are poor spiritually. We are beggars who can't save ourselves. And the Lord heard them and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encircles around those who fear him and delivers them. Now, are these descriptions of every second of every day of what I feel? No. They're descriptions of every second of every day of what's real and true of you, no matter whether you feel it or not. If you belong to Jesus, he is delivering you from all your fears. He's making you beautiful. He's He's saving you out of all of uh, your troubles. Not always the way you want. And the angel of the Lord is actually circling around you, whether you know it or not. All of these are beautiful descriptions, but it goes on. Psalm 36, just a couple psalms over. Psalm 36, verses uh, 7 through 9. How precious is your loyal love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights." For with you, Lord, is the fountain of life. In your light, we actually see light. These are descriptions. These are experiences of what it means. Just a minute ago, we read realities in Psalm 34. These are experiences, actual experiences that people who belong to the Lord have. They, 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 they see that there is light in his light, that they, they experience God is drinking from the river of delights. Didi read to us Psalm 119. There are 176 verses in Psalm 119. They're all put in eight-verse couplets, and they all say the same thing over and over and over again. And on the surface, when you read Psalm 119, it seems like what they're saying is, the law of God is is so important. It, you could almost read it as someone who says, I am determined to do right and never do anything wrong in my life. As though they're just this obsessive God-pleaser, afraid to do wrong and wanting to obey and, and exalting the word of God. Now, some there's some truth in that, but that's not what Psalm 119 is about. Psalm 119 is about someone who is so wrapped up in God, and they see the law of God as the way to be nearest uh, to God. It's the way to experience the most of God, and it breaks their heart when people dishonor God by dishonoring his law, and in the process, destroy themselves. Over and over again, this is someone who is just, it's the psalmist, it's almost like Paul could have read Psalm 19 and said, yes, that's me. For me to live is Christ. Augustine, one of the first Christian autobiographies ever written in the 300s, opens his little biography called Confessions with this line, O oh Lord, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. And Jesus said it even better. This is eternal life, that you may know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ who be sent. Jesus isn't a helper in life. He is life. That's what Paul's saying. For me to live is Christ. And Someone put it this way. In fact, I don't remember if I put this up there, I did. I don't even know where I got this quote when I was uh, researching Philippians for the last several months. So I don't know who to give credit for, but it's not me. Uh, The world has nothing to offer me that is more valuable than Jesus Christ. In fact, my whole life is wrapped up in the enjoyment and glorifying of Jesus Christ. And so if you took all the rest of my life away and left me with only Christ in death, it would be more than I have now. Because I would have more of him in death. That's why if you're living for Christ. Dying is gain. But if you're not. It's not so much. Now when you hear these statements. From Psalm 34 and Psalm 36. And Psalm 119 and Augustine. And this statement here. I can guess what some of you are thinking right now. I can guess that some of you might be saying. Yeah you know. Is typical, this is the cynics among you, and since I identify with them the most, I'll speak for them. Uh, yeah, Rick's just kind of overstating the experience of the Christian life. That's not mine. And, and that was Paul's experience, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's our experience. That was the experience of the guy in Psalm 36, but that doesn't mean it has to be our experience. We're not all called to be Navy SEALs for Jesus Well, what's interesting is that Paul is setting up in Philippians chapter 1. He's basically, he hasn't said a thing about the Philippians yet. He's only talking about himself and his circumstances. And what he's trying to say is, this is what I've discovered in the worst of circumstances. Now, verse 27 of chapter 1, let me pivot and talk about your circumstances and say, you can experience this as well. No, 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 this isn't just Paul. This is meant for us, too. But, of course, that begs another question, doesn't it? That's not me, your heart's probably saying. Oh, that's not me. Those descriptions that you just read, I'm not living, you know, all the time for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's not me most of the time. Well, before you get too hard on yourself, because that's also a very contagious disease. In fact, I would say this. It's actually a contagious disease in this church. Um, there's a difference between frustrated longings and no longings at all. There's a difference in the Bible between frustrated longings and no longings at all. So let me address those of you who have no longings at all to live for Christ. Jesus tells the story of a a guy who goes out with seed and he throws it into a field and some of it lands on the rocks, some of it gets choked out by thorns, some of it just have, they, it has shallow roots. But the point is, all that seed, all that sort of Christianity message that goes out over and over again through Christian homes and pulpits, a lot of it never takes real root and bears fruit. And one of the proofs of that is that deep down inside, you really don't have a longing for Christ to be honored above all other things in life. And if that's the case for you, I would just encourage you to hear these words from that great theologian, Johnny Cash. (laughs) There's a man going around taking names. And he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. The hairs on your arm will stand up at the terror in each sip and each sup. And here, Is Johnny's invitation represented right here in Bread and Cup today, right now, if you have no longing in your heart? Will you partake of that last offered cup or disappear into the potter's ground when the man comes around? You're still breathing. There's still opportunity for you to be transferred from the dominion of darkness where you live to the forever kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1 says. But for those of you who long in your heart for Christ to be honored, who really do belong to Jesus, your longings are frustrated, aren't they? Every day, probably. But here's what I want to encourage you with. It's more true than you think that you are living for Christ. It's more true than you think that you're actually living for Christ. The Holy Spirit in us is like a big blown up beach ball. And even though you push it down to the bottom of the pool, it has an amazing ability to resurrect itself again and again and again. After all, Romans six says that you were dead to you're dead to sin, and you are now alive to God. You are responsive to God. Yep, you stray, but God's voice is better than your straying. That's the promise of Scripture over and over. So, I want to ask: Have you asked this question? How do you fill in the blank? For me to live, for me to live actually is this is how our frustrated longings become straying longings. And this is how we identify what we're living for so we can get our straying longings less frustrated back to where they're supposed to be. You got me on that? Okay. So how do you fill in the blank? And I think it's easier to identify this by identifying the fears that you experience. Let me just name some of them. The fear of failure. By the way, there's also the corresponding fear of success The fear of dreams that you have that are dying and may never ever come true. The fear of your body failing you and already failing you and never changing. The fear of never getting married or the fear of never getting out of your marriage. By the way, you know how I came up with these? Conversations with all of you. The fear of never having kids or the fear of having kids. The fear of loved ones never finding happiness or even worse, never finding holiness. The just grinding, nonstop, stressful fear of people's expectations of you. The fear of a sin that you have Going public and the devastation that would bring in your life. The fear that people will never see that climate change is a big hoax are the opposite. The fear that people will never see that climate change is an absolute horror that we need to reckon with. The fear that socialism is taking over or that capitalism's out of control. The fear of sexual freedom. That there's too much of it, or for some of you, there's not enough of it. The fear of civil war in America, a very real fear, by the way, the fear that the American church is fracturing at the same time it's historically reducing in numbers like never before, are perhaps some of the most personal and constant fears of all. Loneliness, Doubts and death itself. And here's what Philippians does for us. To the extent that I am living for Christ, to the extent that I am living for Christ, for his honor, for something that's certain, to that same extent, all of those wants and all of those fears lose a lot of ruling power over me. So much so that the worst fear of all, the thing which I clearly have no control over at all, death itself, can actually turn out to be a gain. Because it can't threaten what I'm living for. In fact, if death is gain, it's ultimately more of what I'm living for. Now, here's where I want to make a logical sort of shift from that principle. Could it be then, if that's true of the worst fear of all, could it be then, That every want that is denied in my life and every fear that comes true in my life, could it be that that's also gain? That in some way, it's actually amplifying what I'm living for, Christ himself? I just want you to consider that. My my guess is that within 24 hours, if not 24 minutes, Something unwanted will cross your path. It could be super minute or it could be massive. Something unwanted will cross your path. It's an opportunity in that moment for you to yield and be filled with the Spirit or to cling to it and grieve the Spirit. And every time we fight to yield, the next time we're better at yielding and so forth and so forth. And every time we do, we live for Christ more. And here's the thing, did you know that God is more determined to wean you from your wants and fears than you ever will be? This is not a alone project. I want to share one very personal thing here before we take bread and cup today, but I'm going to take a moment to have the people, the worship team and the people serving communion to come forward. Again, for those of you who aren't familiar with how we do things here, if you know Christ, if he's your savior, you have those longings within you, even though they're frustrated, then come this morning. Come with your sin, come with everything, leave it here, confess it, drink of bread and cup. We'll take it all together in a moment, I'll I'll lead us in that. This is the reason we can actually sit here and talk about something so unwanted being gained. It's because of Christ's sacrifice for us. Or as one very old dead guy said, "The cross is the death of death and the death of Christ," uh, and that's what we can drink and celebrate and eat and celebrate today. But I changed the ending of this sermon because of an email I got this morning. Mike Hickson is a was the pastor of Graham Church, just a few minutes north of here. Yesterday, he was out on a bike ride with his wife, had heart issues, pulled over, but they couldn't resuscitate him, and he died. A few weeks ago, Mike was here with a bunch of other pastors as we sat around, and Mike shared how he was processing the death of his 31-year-old daughter, Abby. And how he buried her at Graham Church on the day she was supposed to get married. Watching Matt share Mike share that, realizing how how our life is such a vapor just caught me by total surprise, not only in the shock of losing a brother, but in the reality that we live our days all the time as though nothing's ever going to happen. And yet it can. We know that, don't we? I want to read to you from Isaiah 40 because it just, I just found myself drifting there this morning. And by the way, pray. Uh, for Catherine, Mike's wife, uh, Catherine is disabled and depended upon Mike a lot. Pray for Graham Church, losing a pastor who was preaching through Philippians, by the way. Uh, after 20-some years, is not going to be easy for that church. After Isaiah just pins the people of God to the wall that they have just strayed so far for so many generations from God. He then begins his note of hope. But that's not, it's almost like he says, here's the bad news. Now don't, let's not stop there. He says, Isaiah 40, "'Comfort, comfort my people,' says your God. "'Speak tenderly to Jerusalem.'" cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, and then this famous opening verse of the New Testament that's also right here, 700 years before in the book of Isaiah, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, every valley will be lifted up, every mountain and hill will be made lone, the uneven ground will become level. The rough places, a plain. Why is that? Why is God sort of geographically clearing the landscape? And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So that nothing will get in the way of the Savior. <laughs> and that his glory will be unmistakable and unavoidable. And then these were the verses that made me think of Mike. A voice says, cry. Well, what shall I cry? Cry that all flesh is grass. There's a beauty about it, but it's like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it like he did on Mike yesterday. Surely all the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. I don't know when all of us will die. But I know it's certain. But I know something else is more certain than even that. If you can say something, it's more certain. And that is the word of God, the promise of God through Christ. It's all we have. Someone has said, and again, I don't know who said this. Death is not the extinguishing of the light. It's putting out the lamp. Because dawn has come. That's why death is gain. It's the end of our frustrated longings. You've heard me say this before. I always just think of when you become a believer, you're given wings. Red Bull stole that from me. Um, and you begin flapping. But you know what's so frustrating is you can hardly get off the ground. And, you know, you, you keep flapping. And, it, and if you're not careful, you get frustrated because you're tethered to this fallen world. But as you grow in Christ. Your tether gets longer. There's moments. Just moments. When it feels like you're soaring. And death. He cuts the tether. And here's the amazing thing. None of the flapping is wasted. All of that muscle memory. Turns into soaring forever. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let's take a moment, and then I'll pray for us. Oh, Lord, what joy there is. What contented anticipation there is in living for you and then gaining you forever. May you take us now as we come to this bread and cup and deliver us from longings that will never do it for us, and refix our longings on living for you. That's a prayer with absolute certainty. I know you will answer in this very moment for the glory of Jesus.